here and it's been three two days now i'm still thinking about what the heck happened to tucker carlson like what's the real story listening to charles johnson's space from april 24. i think it was very much essential for like the rise of murdoch i mean they they looked the other way on a lot of you know regulations that they had previously held uh to essentially allow him to build you know his radio and television empire uh, and newspaper empire in the united states so yeah. the question is, is that the U.S. government doing that? I mean, I suppose that's true. Is that, but, you know, I think this is a good yeah. look at it like alien dialectic, you know, like like feeding out, um, you know, two, uh, you know, counterpoints to each other that kind of um, yet, you know, uh, basically essentially just uh, disseminated to make people argue amongst each other and not really like find truth or find any um, reasonable solutions, uh, you know, just kind of like for or the, uh, the ruling elite, I guess I would say. Well, there's certainly an element in which like a lot of these fake narratives contribute to conflict within the country. I mean, I, I've talked about that before with Black Lives Matter coverage, that CNN and others really love that because it, it leads to conflict and conflict gets eyeballs, right? Um, so there is an element in which I think that's true. And I think my takeaway from reading the, the lawsuit, the Dominion lawsuit, is, uh, you know, they loved the controversy. They loved everyone like plugged in and watching and engaging, you know, with the content. Whether it was true or not was sort of immaterial to the question of eyeballs, which would in turn mean that they could get more money from their advertisers. But I think on the advertiser front, as we talked about before, I think the MyPillow guy is like 40% of the revenue for, uh, you know, or for, for the advertising revenue, which is kind of crazy if you think that, about it. Really that much? Yeah, I mean, that's what they My say in their guy, filings. Like... Um, are those true? Are those fully accurate? I don't know. But, uh, but that is what they say, yeah. That's wild. Um, and then one more just general statement that I wanted, well, actually, I guess, too. Um, I, there's a lot of people who are doing spaces, and they're all kind of like Normicon conservatives, and they get like up to like 300 uh, listeners and stuff. I think it'd be really good and um, beneficial for you to pop in and just like drop some, you know, bring them back down to earth like realities to these people. Um, I, I have like a list of names of people who do some pretty big spaces. Would you be interested in me messaging them to you? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm yeah. happy to go on spaces of all types. I mean, earlier, you know, um, I was in the Mario space, you know, talking about a lot of these issues and was, of course, jumped by all these different players. So I'm always yeah. down to talk to whoever about these topics. Um, what I really don't have patience for are the people who like concern troll me or who say like, oh, well, you know, you're just bitter or whatever. And it's like, no, I, I, I've lived these things. I've observed these things. And I'm going to talk about these yeah. things because I think they're important. And um, so I don't really mind. I'll go into any room and, and pick any fight. Uh, you know, Charles. When you went on the Mario space, I was listening the entire time. And I was pretty when I saw you, they actually accepted you. You know, with all the guys over there, I was pretty surprised. And that was... so you're you're probably wondering, forty, what is NPR's perspective on all that? And I am so glad that you asked. All right, Tucker Carlson built an audience for conspiracies at Fox. Where does it go now? All right, this is the uh... want all of NPR without relying on Whoa. your radio. Visit npr.org. Carlson is on the set of CNN's Crossfire. His co-host, Paul Bagala, is ribbing him about a bet he'd made, a bet that if then-Senator Hillary Clinton's memoir sold a million copies, he would eat his shoes. The memoir hit the mark in just a month. That reminds me of the old prayer. Dear Lord, make my words sweet and tender, for I may have to eat them. Uh, Tucker, you're going to have to eat some shoe leather, brother. You know, Paul, it wouldn't be the first time I've had to eat my words. Oh, my God! Onto the set walks Hillary Clinton, holding a cake in the shape of a shoe. The audience laughs. Clinton and Carlson gamely ham it up. I really want you to notice, uh, Tucker, that this is a wingtip. It's a right wing tip. <laughs> Back in 2003, Tucker Carlson wore a trademark bow tie and had a provocative streak, but he was really a run-of-the-mill conservative pundit. 
the kind of figure that C-SPAN would invite on for their open phone segment, and who would proudly defend the American press when a caller criticized it. Uh, of course the press gets things wrong, and, and mostly they're sins of shallowness, you know, not going far enough um, and putting stories into the appropriate context. Sure, there is some bias. But there is no press in the world as straightforward and accurate as the American press, said Carlson. What do you think people around the world uh, read every morning? Serious people who want a, an understanding of what actually happened in the world the day before they read the New York Times. Two decades later, Carlson's bow tie is gone, and so are his establishment Republican politics. Instead, he has embraced a paranoid worldview fueled by racial resentment and status anxiety, one he's brought directly into the living rooms of millions of Americans with his own show on Fox since 2016. Welcome to the first edition of the eponymously named Tucker Carlson Tonight Show. I got a haircut for the show. We're glad you're here until this week. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Fox News Tonight. I am Brian Kilmeade. As you probably have heard, Fox News and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways. I wish Tucker the best. Consider this. Tucker Carlson dominated cable news by playing to his viewers' most divisive impulses. His rise at Fox helped build an appetite for hostility and conspiracies that may live on after his ouster. From NPR, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's Wednesday, April 26th. Support comes from our 2023 lead sponsor of Consider This, Capital One, offering their premium travel Thanks, card, Venture X. Oh, wow. Capital One, what's in your the wallet? Premium. Details at CapitalOneVMware.com. Wow. For his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a contributor. Unmentioned was Carlson's value to the network. He was Fox's most watched primetime host. Also unmentioned, his pivotal role in right-wing politics, nudging the Republican base into a realm of conspiracy and racial resentment alongside Donald Trump's rise. Another thing, the statement did not address the pending sex discrimination lawsuit against Fox and Tucker Carlson that may have led to his ouster. So, to get a little more context, I spoke with NPR's media correspondent David Folkenflik and NPR's Shannon Bond, who covers disinformation. And David, I'm going to let you kick us off. These millions of people who were tuning into Tucker Carlson's show every night, what did they get? You know, they've got, as you alluded to, in a sense, a, a formula night after night of seething resentment, in some ways tempered by a kind of malevolent mirth. You heard these sweeping accusations uh, that the world was arrayed against the Fox viewer and by uh, association the Trump voter and against Fox News itself and Tucker Carlson. There's this us and themism. They are out to get us. Okay, so stay with that, the us versus them frame. And Shannon Bond, you jump in on this. Give us some examples of what he actually said and how that lines up or not against reality. Yeah, I mean, just to take a couple examples, um, January 6th, the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol um, you know, was a big focus for, for Tucker Carlson. Um, at one point, he had described it essentially as a false flag operation by Antifa and the FBI. It sounds like, according to this, I have to say, remarkable piece that you've just put up late last night, read it in bed at midnight, that the FBI was organizing the riots of January 6th. He also then went on to describe it as a peaceful protest. He described the people you know, at the Capitol as not as insurrectionists, but as sightseers. Protesters queue up in neat little lines. They give each other tours outside the speaker's office. 
They take cheerful selfies and they smile. And then perhaps the most extreme narrative that he you know, pushed over and over again is this conspiracy theory known as the Great Replacement. And it's this idea, this completely fictitious and racist idea that the U.S. and other Western countries are bringing in non-white immigrants to replace white people. And Tucker Carlson, you know, in the context of, of the U.S., framed this as a deliberate push by President Joe Biden and Democrats. You can't just replace the electorate because you didn't like the last election outcomes. That would be the definition of undermining democracy, changing the voters. I mean, this comes straight from far-right forums, from white nationalist spaces. This is an idea that has been embraced by extremists, including the man accused of murdering 10 people in a Buffalo supermarket last year. So this is the kind of stuff he's like taking from the bowels of the Internet and putting on air to, you know, 3 million people who are watching him every night, you know, on Fox News. It's, it's really quite stunning. So that is what he is saying. That is what people were tuning in to see. Shannon, stay with that for a second. Can we can we measure what the impact was, how he influenced right-wing politics? Well, it, it really was this sort of pipeline from, again, as I said, kind of the, the, the depths, the really kind of these very dark, very extremist spaces. It was also a bit reciprocal. And, you know, it, it, you get the sense that people I spoke to said, you know, Tucker Carlson really did have his finger on the pulse of the Republican base. And in many cases, he was giving much of the Fox audience what they wanted. It, it's worth noting, Mary Louise, that Carlson influences conservative and right-wing politics in a different way than some of his colleagues. He's not just sort of showing up at Republican rallies like Sean Hannity does. You know, he's trying to influence where they go thought-wise. So, for example, he shows up at CPAC, the conservative conference, and tries to uh, delineate where he thinks the party should be heading and the movement should be heading. He brings in somebody like Viktor Orban of Hungary, somebody known for his anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric and policies and also his anti-gay rhetoric and policies and normalizes that for Republicans. Okay, so let's turn to developments of just these last few days. Uh, Tucker Carlson has said immigration made America poorer and dirtier. He spread conspiracy theories about vaccines, about other things. These things did not get him fired. David Folkenflik, do we know what did? Well, I would say litigation focuses the mind, and there there are two buckets that we can look at. Let's first talk about him being directly sued along with Fox News and his former executive producer, Justin Wells, by their former top uh, booker and producer for the show, a woman named Abby Grossberg. Uh, booker is somebody who gets guests on the show. She says that when she worked there, uh, it was a place defined by sexism and bigotry uh, and that it was so rife that it created a hostile place for her to work in. Yeah, uh, she, ju she just gave an interview to MSNBC in which she had a, a pretty stunning example of this. I show up first day of work. There are literally pictures like this big of Nancy Pelosi in a bathing suit in Europe, plastered all over. Um, there was even one on my computer screen for the temporary computer I had to use, and I had to take it down just to work. Yeah, and, you know, the executive, uh, a top executive on the show pulled Grossberg and uh, her colleagues, uh, by her account, not once, but two separate times on which of two leading 
female gubernatorial candidates in Michigan they would prefer to have sex with. And these are just examples of many. She also told NBC that she has 90, count them, 90 tapes of conversations involving colleagues at the network. Each one must be a dagger at the heart of the lawyers who've been working feverishly for Fox News low these many months and years. Okay, and we will see how Tucker Carlson and or his attorneys respond to those uh, claims in court. I want to ask you, though, about this other big bucket of litigation, which is the Dominion voting system defamation lawsuit against Fox, the huge one that just settled. What did we learn about how Carlson operated from the disclosures in that case? So as a result of what's called the discovery process in that suit, Dominion's lawyers were able to secure over a million records from Fox. And these are electronic exchanges, private texts and emails and slacks and notes and what have you. There were correspondence in there, according to three sources I spoke to, that echo the kinds of concerns that Grossberg raised about bigotry, about misogyny and the like. Secondly, what we learned in the Dominion case is behind the scenes from the outset, he thought that the claims of Sidney Powell, a Trump ally who pushed some of these ridiculous conspiracy theories about voting machines changing votes, was laughable. On his own show, he finally, in late November of 2020, laced into Sidney Powell for failing to bring together evidence. And yet, he was absolutely livid, along with other primetime hosts, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, about the fact that Fox News journalists were fact-checking and debunking the claims of Donald Trump and his allies in real time, including claims being made on Fox. He thought that was destroying the Fox brand and its promise to viewers. The cynicism coursing through the bloodstream at Fox, very much a part of what Tucker Carlson was bringing there. Well, and he suggested on air, uh, without evidence, that something nefarious had happened during the election. We don't know how many votes were stolen on Tuesday night. We don't know anything about the software that many say was rigged. We don't know. We ought to find out. But here's what we do know. On a larger level, at the highest levels, actually, our system isn't what we thought it was. It's not as fair as it should be. Not even close. Sorry, hate to say that. It's the milk bottles at the fair. They knew you were coming. They laughed at you when you left. A rigged game, in other words. In terms of Fox the Network, this has been, I would have thought, a a chastening couple of... Guys, uh, Tucker Carlson has spoken. So let's let's pause the pleasure right now. Let's uh, put away our dancing shoes. Tucker has spoken to us. Let's open our Good evening, it's Tucker Carlson. One of the first things you realize when you step outside the noise for a few days is how many genuinely nice people there are in this country, kind and decent people, people who really care about what's true, and a bunch of hilarious people also, a lot of those. It's got to be the majority of the population, even now. So that's heartening. The other thing you notice when you take a little time off is how unbelievably stupid most of the debates you see on television are. They're completely irrelevant. They mean nothing. In five years, we won't even remember that we had them. Trust me, as someone who's participated. And yet at the same time, and this is the amazing thing, the undeniably big topics, the ones that will define our future, get virtually no discussion at all. War, civil liberties, emerging science, demographic change, corporate power, natural resources. When was the last time you heard a legitimate debate about any of those issues? It's been a long time. Debates like that are not permitted in American media. Both political parties and their donors have reached consensus on what benefits them, and they actively collude to shut down any conversation about it. 
Suddenly, the United States looks very much like a one-party state. That's a depressing realization, but it's not permanent. Our current orthodoxies won't last. They're brain dead. Nobody actually believes them. Hardly anyone's life is improved by them. This moment is too inherently ridiculous to continue, and so it won't. The people in charge know this. That's why they're hysterical and aggressive. They're afraid. They've given up persuasion. They're resorting to force. But it won't work. When honest people say what's true, calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail. Where can you still find Americans saying true things? There aren't many places left, but there are some, and that's enough. As long as you can hear the words, there is hope. See you soon. Wow, Tucker Carlson. Wonder, wonder what it all means. All right, back to NPR. A couple of weeks for them. They booted one of their biggest names. They paid out this massive settlement. Are we likely to see a chastened fox, David? Are we likely to see changes in how this network operates? I think that you will see in the near term uh, more care given to uh, avoiding specific allegations that are defamatory against specific individuals and institutions that could prove legally actionable. Uh, and it may be chastened in the short term. But I think you're tonally likely to see attacks on Biden, attacks on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, critical race theory, uh, trans activists and the like. It's just going to be less specific. So it's not going to be legally a problem. But so, are we watching for a Fox that actually lives up to the name of Fox News, that fact checks the journalism? And I'm putting that in, in quotes that goes on its air. My sense is we haven't had that in quite a while. And you're also operating in this media landscape where there are now a lot of competitors to Fox that are even further right, that are even sort of further removed from reality. Um, you know, you have platforms like the video platform Rumble. You have outlets like Newsmax. And, you know, Fox is very sensitive to what its audience wants and what the right wing audience in general wants. And I think, as David said, I mean, these kind of these narratives, the, you know, this, this, this sort of the push around transphobia, um, you know, th th these culture war issues that clearly resonate with their audience. I, I just I don't see how they're not you know, going to continue to cater to the whims of their audience. Last question. What's next for Tucker Carlson, a figure who still wields huge clout with Republican voters? Do we have any idea what he might do with it? There Go has ahead. been a lot of speculation he could move to one of these even further right platforms, you know, something like Rumble, or frankly, that he might have the clout to launch his own platform. I mean, you know, I think Tucker is the type of personality who maybe has enough of an audience to, to strike out on his own. I mean, we also even saw RT, the, the Kremlin-backed media outlet, tweeting at Tucker after news of, of his ouster from Fox saying, hey, you know, hey, Tucker Carlson, you can always come on RT. So I don't think he'll have any shortage of places he could go. I think the question is just how much of his audience he can bring with him. We have been speaking with NPR's Shannon Bond and NPR's David Folkenflick. Thanks to you both. You bet. Thanks, Thank you. guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I wonder if they have anything more that's good there. Need to know about seeing a world? Visit LAist.com fictional podcast out now. From the L.A. City Controller. Following the October release of those recordings, shutting down. Okay, let's uh, let's hear from 
Chuck Johnson, Eric Gall. Probably one of the best performances I've seen on Spaces. That was absolutely legendary. You know. Well, thank you. It is it is recorded, um, and uh, and I know a lot of people in here encourage me to do it. And honestly, I didn't have a good enough excuse <clears> to do it. I, I missed it. Can everyone hear me? I was having. I got yeah, we can hear you. We, we, we can Eric, hear you. you need to play the recording. It's it's like absolutely golden. He, the guy, what's his name, Piotr? He just he's like, I'm respectfully. Uh, let's make it into your father. He gets all well, triggered. Problem, you know, the problem I have with some of these guys is they like have family. <laughs> and the guys named Piotr don't like us always. Yeah, well, he has a father that's like literally an oligarch involved in the metals industry. So, so we were, I, I got locked out of my own space here, but none of my devices have exploded. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, what was the last theme we were on? So I can. Well, hold on. So the, the Curzon thing. So Sergey Curzon. Nope. Oh, sorry. Right, I'll, I'll log out and come. Been an hour and a half without any major attacks, so or major dysfunction. That, well, that's an improvement, isn't hey, it? You know, we, we try and this is a business in which you have to. You know, if there's a big old theme here, it's, it's at least to get everyone on the same page that um, you know controlling the narrative in a country is uh, is, is really important. And oh, Charles is requesting to come back on. Oop, oop. He's back. I'm. So, so earlier when we did the uh, the Mario space, I this was is Chuck Johnson speaking. Curzon, whose son Piotr Curzon is in all these spaces. And he's, they're clearly like some kind of oligarch family or there's like weird stuff going on there. And I just posted on the Jumbotron this article, an interview with Sergey Curzon that, that ran in Forbes magazine. And I started reading it to him. And I started, you know, the opening line of it is, I don't know, remember exactly how many times I met President Clinton. Curzon told me as we sat in the London Mayfair offices of his mining companies, Orsus Metal and Oriel Resources. So anyway, I, I just... Um, I just sort of like dropped that in the space and he like lost his shit and started yelling at me. And I made it very clear that like, look, there's a lot of these families that have spying families like the, like the Murdochs, I think, you know, given the, the family connections there, uh, obviously the Maxwell's, which we've talked about before. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, people like, uh, you know, uh, you know, Ghislaine and her whole family connections and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I just think in general, we need to be sort of mindful of who these people are, that they're part of families and these families are part of networks. And they need to be sort of held to account when they're promoting spins or takes on U.S. news, particularly when they're not American. You know, it's not to say that I, I think foreigners can't have an opinion on America. Au contraire, you know, like we, we let Zev up here, you know, we let, we let a number of people out there have opinions. But, um, you know, it has to be sort of in an informed way and it can't be designed to, to misinform or miseducate the American public. And when I was going on with Curzon, you know, Curzon was not allowing me to make my points. So effectively, both of us got kicked out of the space, um, though I thought I sort of held my own. But um, but in any event, what happened immediately afterwards was there was a guy who was connected to the independent who went up there and called me mentally ill and crazy and everything. Thing. And, you know, I think that that's kind of a tell of people not wanting to engage with this, this topic. Um, and of course, you know, if you work at the Independent, which is backed by a Russian oligarch, um, you know, there are questions there about how honestly and faithfully you can report the news. Um, I just think that this is. Okay, this is uh, Chuck Johnson writing on Substack today about Stephen Crowder. Okay, antitrust, bisexual phases, and divorce extortion. Stephen Crowder should sue the foreign compromise Daily Wire. Charles Johnson says the conservative talk show host family Payne was used against him in a labor negotiation. Uh, Chuck says, I don't go in for right-wing stuff these days. I think it's bad for the people who participate in it. Witness Tucker Carlson, I think it's bad for the country. I'm not going for Democrat. But uh, Stephen Crowder, he says, doesn't like me very much, which is a shame because I think he's one of the few people who can hold Ben Shapiro, Candace Owen, and the Daily Wire accountable for their mob-like negotiating tactics and their well-documented ties to foreign governments. And Chuck Johnson talks about how Daily Wire cheats to get the traffic it has today by rigging it with his personal relationship with Mark Zuckerberg. It's clearly an antitrust violation where Shapiro, due to his politics, was working alongside Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg to pollute the American discourse. Why Stephen Crowder wanted to work for Ben Shapiro couldn't say. Could it have been money? What was it exactly? Uh, Stephen Crowder points out that the contract that Ben Shapiro offered him was a slave contract. Right? This was, uh, what was it? $50 million for four years? Yeah, like a slave contract. 
It's plausible that Shapiro and his allies could report Crowder to YouTube to reduce Crowder's market value. This would bind him to the Daily Wire. It gets weirder. I think this looks like a shakedown. And he goes to a tweet here. It seems pretty clear to me that uh, Candace Owens committed an illegal move when she tried to extort Stephen Crowder in a contract negotiation. Because right, uh, Stephen Crowder is apparently getting divorced. Here is uh, Stephen Crowder talking about things. I have been living with a proverbial boot on my neck for going on years now. Uh, since 2021, I've been living through what has increasingly been a horrendous divorce. Now, let me say on the outset, to be clear, there is no infidelity, any kind of physical abuse at all on either side. And no, this was not uh, my choice. My then wife decided that she didn't want to be married anymore. And in the state of Texas, that is completely permitted. It's been the most heartbreaking experience of my life. What I consider to be my deepest personal failure. And just so you know, my opinions on parenting and families have not changed. Um, I've always believed that children need a mom and a dad, that divorce is horrible. And I still believe that children need a mom and a dad and that divorce is horrible. But in today's legal system, my beliefs don't matter. In Texas, divorce is permitted when one party wants it, period. So for well over a year, uh, well over a year, in the best interest as well as physical safety of my children, we've decided to keep this issue private and to resolve it uh, privately with the appropriate attorneys, what have you, legal jargon. Now, in all this, one thing I want to be really clear about is certain. True North here is that my children are blameless, completely without fault, and so we decided to resolve these issues privately as it's in their best interests, uh, both emotionally and physically, to do so. Now, the other issue is, and this is something that I've kept private for likely far too long, um, many other people knew about this behind the scenes. Some, not all, but some of them in positions of power, influence, leverage, knew of this. They also knew that the safety of my children included keeping it private. So if you're familiar with the idea of extortion, then you know the feeling well. Uh, now, some of these threats were so thinly veiled that I'm frankly surprised you didn't all guess immediately. Stephen has a lot going on, I guess is the best way to say it. He has a lot going on, and that should be clear because people don't do stuff like this if there's not a lot going on in their lives. I would like to implore my audience and everybody that isn't paying attention to this situation not to condemn him, but to pray for him. Sometimes people need a prayer. Sometimes people need a scripture. You know, Stephen purports to be a Christian. I am unsure at this moment if, if it is my place to say more than that. You know, maybe if I feel in further defense, something should be said, or maybe if I feel that the public has a right to understand certain circumstances. Well, my children have a right to privacy. Now, some other uh, issues have been, uh, or I should say, uh, inferences have been more pernicious behind the scenes with demands and threats to use this information that they believe would be uh, so publicly embarrassing to me and my wife at a difficult time 
that it could be used, knowingly putting my children in harm's way. So to those self-styled Christians, conservatives, and allies, well, not in my book. Now, if you find yourself, I don't want to get into details, so this is going to likely be the only time I have to address this or want to address this. If you're asking yourself, hey, did X person or did Y person know? The answer is likely yes, which will be made alarmingly clear as this process of discovery continues. Uh, and it also, by the way, makes me that much more appreciative of those who did know about this and in understanding the best interests of my family, my children, kept their word and used discretion. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Sincerely, I appreciate it. Won't forget it. It's, it's pretty simple. Um, I loved a woman so much that I married her. A woman who, despite all of this, I still love as the mother of my children. And she wanted something else for her life. That's not my choice. She simply wanted out, and the law says that that's how it works. Now, of course, look, I get it. There are multiple sides to every story, but one thing that is undeniable uh, in this case is that it's no one's fault but my own in that I picked wrong, and that's certainly not the fault of my children. And uh, I will say that what's in the best interest of my children um, is not Internet drama, speculation, Certainly not blatant or veiled shakedowns or dragging their father or mother, and I can't be clear on that enough, or their mother through the mud. And to anyone who tries it, I'm no longer going to pacify, capitulate, or sidestep because I love them a whole lot more than I love you. And I will continue to do whatever is necessary to protect my children, discussing the divorce any further on social media or on this show or in any public space is not what's best for them. I'll be handling this through the proper legal avenues and channels available as a matter of record in which I have more than full confidence. So I'd ask that you understand the need for and uh, respect our privacy in what is obviously a pretty tough time. And I hope that none of this has to go any further than that. Okay, let's uh, get back to Chuck Johnson's analysis here. And... Uh, Chuck says, extortion only works if you let it. Rumor has it that Crowder is uh, gay or bisexual. That same rumors bedeviled Kansas's own husband, George Farmer, who she met through Rebecca Mercer and quickly married. So Farmer served as a stint of the CEO of Parler, which recently shut down her service in Russia. So worse yet, by threatening to ruin Stephen Crowder's brand by airing his personal family matter during a negotiation, Candace Owens was reducing his market power in the negotiation. Crowder is clearly a limited public figure. His personal matters are his own. And what's that video that uh, Stephen Crowder released? Uh, Blow my mind. I'm bisexual. I'm afraid of it coming back. Proud. I'm afraid of Mr. Hyde rearing his ugly bisexual head that was a sm that was a short phase um i just don't understand what's like why, why you can't be a guy who prefers uh men over women and also not like to pay high taxes hey i can be bisexual and also want lower taxes okay let me ask you this <laughs> how many people who claim to be bisexual are actual bisexual do you think it's a, a do you think a lot of them lie about it to seem cool i'm coming for you okay thank you steven Candace Owens and her husband have their own connections to foreign fronts, says Chuck Johnson. Okay, so what the heck? Let's get back to 
this space here, Chuck Johnson, Eric the reality of the moment that we find ourselves in. And part of the reason a lot of these oligarchs own media properties is to have power, right? To make it so that they can't be criticized or that they can criticize other places. And if you look at things like, you know, the New York Post, um, you know, the New York Post is a valuable source of intelligence to Rupert Murdoch, in much the same way the National Enquirer was a very important, you know, source of intelligence to David Pecker. We do live in an era of catch and kill, you know, where people learn certain stories and those stories go away if, they're, if the people are paid information, which sounds an awful lot like a blackmail network. Um, so I think we need to be sort of mindful that these things operate in our society, that they're around us constantly, and that many of the people who are giving us the news, you know, this is not the Walter Cronkite era, right? This is not like, and that's the way it was, right? Like we live in an era in which a lot of these television networks you know, the people who are on them are compromised in different ways, whether that be through sexual impropriety or drugs or financial issues. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of weird ways over the years that, uh, that What's His Face has made money, that Sean, Chan, Sean Hannity has made money. So I think we have an obligation to do like real research on these people and raise real questions about what they allow and don't allow on television. And, you know, it, it was almost like clockwork. As soon as I mentioned Tucker's relationships with the Netanyahu Likud network, people freaked out. And then there were people who like came up there and like, you know, were like, oh, that's not true. It's conspiracy. It's whatever. And it's like, you can go and look at Yair Netanyahu's Twitter and see him interacting with Tucker Carlson. Like, this is not a, it's not a conspiracy. Like, you could literally see it in front of your own eyes. So I think we need to be sort of mindful of this stuff and really just expose it as time goes on, because otherwise we're not going to have a country like in a very short period. Well, you need to bring people in with you, like to strengthen numbers. And if they just like, bring up like 30 people after you. You know, I, I'm, I'm not entirely certain what we are going to do differently in the sense of, you know, we, you know, when we look at the Cronkite era, which was undoubtedly not particularly perfect, there's no such thing as the good old days. They're just the old days. Um, one of the reasons that there were certain strictures around um, news, which may not have been helpful in every circumstance, was that there was a limit on the technology. You had limit, you know, limited broadcasting um, with consumer devices, fairly limitless reception, but not limited production or not unlimited production. And now we have the opposite issue where pretty much anybody can be a producer uh, and anybody can be a consumer. And I'm, we're never going to get a, you know, a sensor back um, through technological scarcity where, you know, the news is delivered by one supposedly, you know, institutional and trustworthy figure. It's just never coming back. Um, the question is, how do we create, uh, you know, believe, credibility? How do we create authority, not just from an artificial algorithm like the Google algorithm or, you know, uh, hordes of foreign influencers trying to boost things and knock other things down? You know, how, how do we create a system where, you know, there's a meritocratic rise of ideas and, and of purveyors of those ideas? I don't know. Yeah, by the way, I don't, I don't really believe that that's possible, just being honest about it. Like, I, I think these things come in cycles. And the question, like, there's a personal individual credibility that I think comes from posting receipts, posting primary sources. You know, you'll, you'll notice that, like, in all the spaces I do, I'm constantly pointing out to articles. Okay, this is uh, Chuck Johnson speaking. Putting up videos. You know, Tom is usually very helpful on that, putting things in the Jumbotron. And I do this because I think people have a right to, to inquire about these things themselves. And we should be asking ourselves why it is that certain topics are forbidden. And we should also note, like, the, the role that the macroeconomics plays in this. You know, if Netanyahu were a lot stronger, a lot of people wouldn't be as critical of him, right, right now. Um, and so that's sort of how these things work. I think the same thing is true on the Me Too side of things, right, which is that when there's lots of corporate profits, people look the other way on people, you know, grabbing tits or smacking asses or saying bad things, right? But when the macro shifts or when the company is in trouble, that becomes the pretext by which somebody is removed. And maybe we can't talk about how the head of NBC Universal like, okayed the BuzzFeed investment. Maybe we can't have the conversation about what BuzzFeed really is or what Ben Smith really is and his connections with Israeli intelligence or the CUD networks. But those are the conversations I want to have. And so long as I'm able to have those conversations in a public setting uh, without being harassed um, or even being minimally harassed, uh, I'm okay with that. And I'm going to keep talking about it and keep reporting about it and researching it and putting it out there. And I think we all have an, an obligation. So first of all, I think it's a good business move because I think that the public at large knows that they're being lied to in different ways. So there's that, right? Like I personally am kind of shocked at the degree of influence that, you know, many of the people in this space have had just by like reporting and tweeting things. Um, so I think there's an element of that, but I also think that like, you know, many of us come from people who like help settle the country, build the country up. Like, are we really going to like surrender the country to a whole bunch of like bullshitters from, you know, you know, from Israel and, and Russia and China? Like, I mean, doesn't that seem kind of pathetic to let our country fall apart that way, just because like we're worried people are going to say mean things to us, or maybe some of us will lose our jobs? Like, I don't know. It seems kind of ridiculous to me, anyway. Go ahead, Tom. 
I, I, excuse me. Uh, Zevin, uh, Eric had brought up a really interesting, uh, you know, idea, which was, hey, if we can, if uh, if Fox News could be sued for uh, the defamation and Dominion, let's talk about all the damages that they've brought to our country. And the one that stuck out to me was, hey, they helped propagandize our entire nation into going into uh, Iraq, and we all know what a disaster that's been. Yeah, we would have got into Iraq, you know, without uh, Fox News. So great conversation here with uh, Robert Wright and John Mearsheimer. I just want to play the uh, Mearsheimer excerpts. And they have made it unequivocally clear since then that this is unacceptable, that they view this as. Okay, he's talking about uh, Russia here. So John Mearsheimer is a realist, more precisely an offensive realist, meaning that the offensive capability of a country is what determines its its power in the international system an existential threat nevertheless we failed to pay so talking about how russia came to see the unrushing expansion of nato through the 1990s and the early aughts as an existential threat any heat to what they said and we continued to push and push so just imagine that uh, china formed military alliances with mexico and canada and set up military bases in Mexico and Canada. How would the United States react to that? Well, that is pretty similar to the situation that Russia finds itself in with the unrushing expansion of NATO. And we never know people's intentions. So I was reading a Wall Street Journal article on how intelligence operations for, for Britain in the late 1930s, early 1940s were all about trying to read Adolf Hitler's mind. But you never know where someone's going to go, right? People are, are frequently changing. And so even if you trust NATO right now, you have no idea how NATO may be used next year. You have, if you trust uh, Joe Biden right now, you have no idea who's going to be the next president of the United States. So countries are unpredictable. People are unpredictable. And so for a nation state to survive, right, it has to put as its highest priority survival. And part of surviving is recognizing how quickly people and institutions and countries can change. Push. And eventually we got a war. And the big question on the table is who is responsible for this war? Because this war is a disaster. Uh, you know, and we want to know who has blood on their hands. And of course, almost everybody in the West wants to blame the Russians. So they've invented this fairy tale that uh, Vladimir Putin was an imperialist. He was bent on either recreating the Soviet Union or creating a greater Russia. And that Ukraine was the first station on the railway line. And he was going to take Ukraine. Then he was going to take more countries in Eastern Europe. And uh, what we have here uh, is a highly aggressive imperialist. The problem with this argument, which again is the conventional wisdom, is that there's no evidence to support it. There just simply is no evidence. And I have pressed many people who make that argument to show me the evidence. And they can't show me the evidence. On the contrary, there is a superabundance of evidence that the Russians, not just Putin, but his lieutenants as well, considered this to be a situation where NATO was presenting Russia with an existential threat, and they had to deal with it. And therefore, what this war is, it's not a war of aggression in the sense that Putin was interested in conquering Europe uh, to become an imperial uh, czar or some version of Peter the Great. This was a defensive war. It was a war of self-defense, period. Now, uh, one thing you hear in response to that view, and I'm sure you've heard it, is, well, Putin says things that sound as if uh, just national self-interest, national self-defense is not the full extent of his consideration. For example, uh, he was saying as far back as 2008, quote, Ukraine is not a real country. 
Uh, also, he has, I guess maybe since the invasion, made some kind of reference to Peter the Great. I, I forget what he said, but, you know, people, of course, who disagree with you seize on that and say, see, he does uh, identify with the imperialists of the past. So uh, although it's certainly true and, and, and I think underappreciated that he dwelt at great length in his pre-invasion speech on NATO, uh, he also says other things that may suggest other motivations and people who disagree with you emphasize those. How do you, how do you handle that? Why, why would he, what does it mean to you that he says that Ukraine has never been a real country? Look, I operate in a world of facts and logic, and I want to see the facts, right? Where are the facts? And what everybody points to is the July 12th, 2021 essay that he wrote. And this is supposed to be the evidence that he didn't think Ukraine was a real nation and that he was hinting that he was going to conquer it. If you read that document, it is manifestly clear that he was saying exactly the opposite. He made it perfectly clear that he recognized Ukrainian nationalism, and that Ukraine's future was up to Ukraine. There is no evidence in that document that he was interested in conquering Ukraine. And if you look at his behavior in the run-up to the war, what he was trying to do was make the Minsk agreement work so that the civil war in the Donbass would be settled and there would be no need for Russia to get involved. He did not want to invade Ukraine and conquer it. He was not making the argument that your Ukrainian nationalism is a fiction. This famous article that everybody points to was written in the context of the civil war that was taking place in the Donbass. And what Putin was trying to say is that Ukrainians and Russians have effectively been blood brothers and blood sisters forever, and we shouldn't be killing each other in the Donbass. That's what was going on here. I don't understand how people can point to that document as the key piece of evidence that he was an imperialist. Yeah, and, and by the way, you know, I happen to find that, you know, he does say as far back as... So you're probably wondering, hey, 40, what would our elites do with unlimited resources? If we had unlimited resources, one of the biggest shortcomings that exists in study of disinformation in the U.S. context is lack of good monitoring of what goes on in encrypted platforms, particularly WhatsApp to an extent WeChat. When we talk about misinformation that's spread in immigrant and diaspora communities, a lot of it never really enters broader public awareness because it's restricted very much to these platforms. The only good way to monitor these platforms is to have an active presence in the channels in which this information is spread. That's been tough for researchers to establish. It's not going to happen in the next 80 days. So that's something where we will be very reliant on tips from partners and from concerned citizens who might see particular narratives developing, which, uh, you know, if we have more information, we can go in and look at it and help contextualize it. But we can't do that on our own at this point, I don't think. Boy, if we had unlimited... I would, I would love to contextualize things with this lovely lady. Wow, from Graphica? I mean, wow. I'd love to contextualize things with her, but that's just me. This 2008, quote, Ukraine is not a real country. But the earliest example of, of that I have found, and, uh, you know, I, I've, I've really tried to learn a lot about the history of U.S.-Russia. Okay, here we go. My principal lens for looking at the world is a structural one. And who is the leader does not matter in that structural argument. But that structural argument of mine, that realist argument, does not capture all of what is going on. Any theory, realist, liberal, whatever, is a you know simplified picture of reality. Mm -hmm. And certain factors are left on the cutting room floor. And in my theory, individual leaders in domestic politics are left on the cutting room floor. Am I saying that they... And the chat asks, do I take this serious? Yes, I take, uh, I take <laughs> John Mishima very seriously. I basically have his worldview when it comes to geopolitical uh, conflicts, right? Th this is how I see the world. That different forms of life often have different interests and they struggle to survive. And uh, I've just been re-watching Seinfeld and who can forget the classic movie 
Rochelle Rochelle in the long journey from Milan to Minsk. One young woman's erotic journey. They don't matter at all? Of course not. They do matter. My argument is they do not matter that much. So one could make an argument that if someone besides Putin was in power, this would play, have played itself out in a somewhat different way because leaders do matter somewhat. But my point is that whoever was running the ship of state in Moscow would have done essentially what Putin did. And Bill Burns, by the way. And this is also key to my worldview. All right. I'm like, Mish, I'm a structuralist. All right. I don't think personalities matter that much for uh, politics, for international power, for international power relations, for international conflicts. All right. Personalities don't really matter that much. What, what matters is the structure of a society and the structure of international relations. What matters is the demographics of a country combined with its geography and how that sets it up against competitors. But uh, we're all essentially locked in an iron cage together. No one's coming to rescue us. There's no higher authority who's going to bail us out. And so every people have to make their number one priority, their survival. And to do that, that means engaging in real politic and being willing to cheat, beg, borrow, steal, do anything you, you need to do to survive, including, oh my God, breaking international law if necessary. I effectively makes this point in his famous memo to Condi Rice, mm -hmm. where he makes it manifestly clear that it was not just Putin, but all of the Russian elite. Who do I believe that Putin is not an imperialist? Yes, I believe that. All right. Russia doesn't even have the forces to take over Ukraine let alone Eastern Europe. I was reading the most absurd oh, Thomas Friedman column today. Uh, my God, this is the, the foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times, and, and he's talking about uh, if, if Russia has its way with uh, Ukraine, right, that it is going to, going to lead to uh, Putin just taking over Europe. I mean, uh, Putin can't even take over Ukraine, right? He's he's that weak. And where's the the Tom Friedman column? Man, who felt that uh, Ukraine and NATO was the brightest of all red lines? Mm -hmm. Now, what about uh, in 2014 after the uh, you know the well the violent revolution that overthrows a democratically elected president? Putin sees that as a Western-backed, U.S.-backed coup, and there certainly were certain forms of Western uh, encouragement of the, of the, of the protests that, that uh, led to the revolution, you could say at a very minimum, you could say that much. Um, he reacted by seizing uh, Crimea uh, with little or no bloodshed, as I recall, and ultimately giving some support to uh, separatists, and there was to some extent an indigenous uh, separatist sentiment, at least among some people in the Donbass, but Russia supported that. Do you think uh, pretty much any Russian leader would have... Okay, I found this just ridiculous... Tom Friedman, New York Times column. I mean, he's that leading foreign affairs columnist, right? And he says, this is, the, there are three things that absolutely cannot be allowed to happen, right? This is why the focus of my columns these days has been very tight, right? This is what Tom Friedman's obsessed with. Israel cannot be allowed to turn into an autocracy like Viktor Orban's Hungary. Okay, out of all the things going on in the world, like how Israel decides to rejigger its judiciary just doesn't strike me as something that should figure in the top 50 concerns, top 100 concerns for Americans, for Australians, for the English, for the French, for the, for the Germans, for the Mexicans. Like, why would you care if Israel 
becomes more democratic by allowing the people who are elected to have more power over selecting judges. All right. Uh, Victor Orban's Hungary, all right, flawed society, but uh, one that's willing to stand up for itself. I, I, I can't think of many countries in the world I admire more than Ukraine right now. I mean, more than Hungary. Uh, Ukraine cannot be allowed to afford a Vladimir Putin. Why not? It makes absolutely no difference to American interests. So he is obsessed with something that makes zero difference to the welfare of Americans. And Donald Trump cannot be allowed to occupy the White House ever again. Donald Trump was in the White House for four years, and for your average American, it made absolutely no difference. Unless you follow the news, right? It made absolutely no difference. Joe Biden has occupied the White House for four years, and for 99% of Americans, 99% of the time, neither the presidency of Biden, nor Trump, nor Obama has made any difference. And so he said, if all three of these things were to happen, the world would completely collapse. Israel is the only functioning pluralistic democracy in the Middle East, tempered by the rule of law, and it would be lost. Yeah, if they just uh, they did just change the judicial system moderately, all would be lost. And this is just the most absurd thing. The European Union would be at Putin's mercy if Ukraine falls. Putin doesn't even have enough troops to take over Ukraine. How on earth would the European Union be at Putin's mercy? And the United States of America with Donald Trump back in office, uh, Donald Trump would be unchained. And so that is why Biden absolutely has to win. And he must make the case for, for Kamala Harris. Uh, okay, these are the obsessions, right, of the New York Times top foreign affairs columnist. My God, is Robert Wright just wordy, just a horrible interviewer. Ugh. Let me fast forward through his draft. One, uh, the Wehrmacht, uh, the Nazis, invaded the Soviet Union uh, and ended up killing 24 million Russians. So the Russians, as you can imagine, are very aware of their history and they're very sensitive about how vulnerable they may be. So that's one point you want to keep in mind. Second point you want to keep in mind is that Russian thinking about NATO expansion is not unusual for great powers. We have the Monroe Doctrine here in the United States. And the idea that a great power, a distant great power, can wander into the Western Hemisphere with military forces is unacceptable to us. Okay, Ukrainians are pro-Mesopotamians in the chat. Says the question was whether Putin wasn't whether Putin could take Ukraine. The question was whether Putin is an imperialist. Well, someone who is so weak that he can't even take Ukraine, right? It doesn't matter whether he's an imperialist or not. If any other European country was party to this conflict as Ukraine, they would have left the field a long time ago. It's not Russia versus Ukraine. It's Russia versus NATO. Right. NATO and the United States are propping up Ukraine with tens of billions of dollars in weapons, intelligence, all sorts of things. So it's not Russia taking on Ukraine. Right? It's Russia taking on NATO. Ukraine is acting as a NATO proxy. We all know this from the Cuban Missile Crisis. It mm -hmm. was just unacceptable for the Soviets to put missiles in Cuba. They weren't talking about launching an invasion into Florida. They were just talking about putting nuclear-armed missiles in Cuba. And that was... Yeah, and so if you don't like the the thought of Russia or the Soviet Union having nuclear missiles in Cuba, why do you think Russia would be thrilled with the NATO just rolling out right next door onto its doorstep? Categorically unacceptable. Go back to 1950, when we crossed the 38th parallel in Korea. Remember the North Koreans invade on June 25th, 1950. We turned the tide. 
And then we're in a position where we can cross the 38th parallel. Well, if we do that, we start marching up towards the Chinese border, the Yalu River, which separates North Korea from China. The Chinese, unsurprisingly, make it unequivocally clear that this is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And they send a clear signal to us that if we persist in moving toward the Yalu River, right. they're coming in. And they came in. And the Korean War, which lasted from 1950 to 1953, was not a war between Koreans and Americans. It was a war between the United States and China. And the issue at hand here is the same issue you see at play during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's the same issue you see at play here in Ukraine. And the fact that most American elites can't get it through their thick skulls that this was this is what's going on is truly remarkable. Mm-hmm. Now, some of us would say that in all of these cases, or at least in some of them, the great powers you refer to are being kind of... Sorry, let me just uh, fast forward through Robert Wright. Vigilant. They mm-hmm. care greatly about their survival. And uh, uh, this is perfectly rational. Look, we live in an anarchic world, which is to say there is no higher authority if you get into trouble. And states go to great lengths to make sure that they're very powerful and that mm-hmm. they're not for good security reasons. If you're weak in the international system, uh, what happens to you is what happened to the Chinese during the century of national humiliation from the late 1840s to the late 1940s. That's what happens when you're weak or what happened to the Russians when the Cold War ended. The Russians, as you know, were adamantly opposed to NATO expansion, but the Russians were very weak. So what did the United States do? It shoved NATO expansion down their throat in 1999. It shoved NATO expansion down their throat in 2004. And then after 2008, it was bent on shoving more NATO expansion down their throat. This is what happened. So apparently the ratings for Fox News Tonight, the show that's replaced Tucker Carlson, they're getting half the audience that they had under Tucker. Happens when you're weak in the international system and there's no 911. So in those circumstances, you want to be really powerful and you want to keep other great powers at a distance. Mm-hmm. And this is rational. Surely you understand the logic here. And if you, Bob, were running a great power, you would want to be really powerful and you would want to keep all your rival great powers as far away as possible. No. I want to go on record as saying I would not have invaded Grenada, John. I'm not sure even you would have. No. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I, there we agree. Okay. Uh, and the point is, but the point is, and yet that kind of... Therefore, we can't buy the logic that they're defensive weapons because you can't distinguish between the two. So mm-hmm. that's point one. The second thing is you cannot determine what intentions are, especially future intentions, as you pointed out a minute ago. Mm-hmm. So if you're a great power looking at a rival, not only can you not tell whether its weapons are offensive or defensive in nature, you also can't tell whether it has offensive or defensive intentions. So what you do in that situation is you assume worst case. Mm-hmm. And everybody does that. And this is what I call in my book, the tragedy of great power politics. Yeah, it is tragic because uh, it leads to big. Okay, let me fast forward through Robert Wright. And the fact is. Actually, I'm not, but go ahead. <laughs> China is a fair competitor. China is much more powerful than Russia. China is a threat to Donald So John Mearsheimer makes the point the United States is committed to fighting for Taiwan. We're not going to just roll over and let China take Taiwan. Dominate all of Asia. It's a threat to become a regional hegemon. And therefore, my view is the United States should focus laser-like on China and go to great lengths to prevent China from dominating all of Asia the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. In the 20th century, the United States faced four countries that threatened to dominate either Europe or Asia. One was Imperial Germany, two was Imperial Japan, three was Nazi Germany, and four was the Soviet Union. We played a key role in putting all four of those countries on the scrap heap of history. The United States does not tolerate pure hegemons, right? We were not going to allow any of those countries, just like we're not going to allow China to become a regional hegemon. And this makes good sense. But if you go over to Russia, there's no chance of Russia becoming a regional hegemon. This country can barely win the war in Ukraine. Do you think that this army is going to conquer Europe? Mm -hmm. They don't have the military capability. So China is a real threat to the United States a threat that the United States actually helped create. And Russia, on the other hand, is not. It's the third great power in the system. It's the weakest of the three, and it should be our ally. We should be using the Russians to help us contain China instead of doing exactly the opposite. Okay. Now, let me make one other very important point. If you look at 
the situation in China, because of the legacy of World War II and the legacy of the Cold War, we ended up in 1990 right on China's border. So we did not have to cross the Pacific Ocean and get into China's face. We were in China's face when China became a great power. Okay. Mm -hmm. The situation with Russia is very different. When the Cold War ended, we were in West Germany. We had to bring East Germany, unified Germany into NATO, and then march across the continent to bring all these other countries into NATO. And this is what caused the problem. If we had to march across the Pacific to get up onto the Chinese border, that would have led to huge troubles. It basically would have been a replay of what happened in 1950 when we crossed the 38th parallel. But we had the good fortune that we were there mm -hmm. in 1990. So we don't have to pursue remarkably provocative policies for the purposes of containing China. But you would have advocated them if we hadn't been there? I don't know. And let me fast forward through. Has it been nearly as preachy as the U.S. has been? Uh, so you have this crusader impulse hardwired into the United States that you don't have in China. I believe, by the way, you had it in the early Soviet Union because communism, like liberalism, is a universalistic ideology. It's just very important to understand that. And that's why you had organizations like Comintern that were designed to spread communism all over the planet. So one, I think, can argue that if the Soviets had won the Cold War and communism, not liberalism, looked like the reigning ideology of the future and some Soviet version of Frank Fukuyama wrote The End of History, you would have seen the Soviets during the unipolar moment behaving much the way the United States did. If at some point in the future, and let's hope this never happens, the Chinese become a unipole, I do not think in that situation that they're going to run around the world trying to make every country look like China and engage in a crusade similar to the one that we engaged in during the unipolar moment. Okay. If I can make one more point, Bob, I think that if a great power, and here we're talking mainly about the United States, lives in a bipolar world, as we did during the Cold War, or in a multipolar world like we did do today. That I just read on uh, Twitter, this woman tweets, uh, all I want for my birthday is uh, Tucker Carlson's secret texts. The United States has to behave in a real and, and apparently he called a Fox News executive the C word. It's like, oh, my God, what a horror. I mean, I don't get this obsession with, with private text, private conversations. I, I don't don't see where we should be castigating people for using the C word or the N word in a private conversation. ...fashion and cover up its behavior with liberal rhetoric. This is Walter Russell Mead. He's, he's providing liberal rhetoric. You know, oh, the, I see. Yeah. Uh, well, the, every, a man's got to make a living, John. Yes. Um, but during the unipolar moment, if you think about this, during the unipolar moment, there were no other great powers in the system. So there was no great power competition. So you could take a holiday from realism during the unipolar moment and you could pursue. a. Yeah, when you're incredibly powerful. All right. When you got a lot of money, a lot of status, a lot of influence in, in real life. All right. You can you can take holidays from reality. So there are a lot of vices that people in the middle and upper classes can indulge in and usually get away with. But if someone from a lower class indulged in them just once could very well just ruin the rest of their life. So from the global to the personal. Liberal foreign policy. And that's why people like me and other realists argue that we pursued a policy of liberal hegemony during the unipolar moment. It was not a realist foreign policy. It was a liberal foreign policy. And we had that luxury because we were in unipolarity and great power competition was off the table. And what's happening now is the great power competition is back on the table. So needless to say, we are acting in a very realist way. And just one other point, if you want to just continue on this, just think of Joe Biden. Joe Biden, when he was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Joe Biden, when he was vice president under uh, Barack Obama, was in favor of engagement with China. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have very good relations with the Chinese and help the Chinese economy grow. When he became president, he adopted Donald Trump's policy of containment. 
Remember, when Trump came to office, he flushed engagement down the toilet bowl and adopted a hard-nosed containment policy towards China. Well, Joe Biden, as president, has actually doubled down on Trump's containment policy. The Chinese will tell you that Biden is tougher on them than Trump was. So you see that Biden has undergone a fundamental transformation. Yeah, so I I know I'm dealing with a not informed, not intelligent, not astute uh, conservative when they complain that uh, Joe Biden has sold out to the Chinese. I mean, Biden has been far tougher on China than Donald Trump was. Uh, Good piece of advice on Twitter. Advice for fighting disorder. Immediately do the thing you need to do before it builds up to being unmanageable. Do it as soon as you think of it. The longer you wait, the more intimidating it seems. Pretend to be someone who would do the thing you need to do. Right, follow a script. You are the actress who is texting your beloved friend. You are the actress who is scheduling a vet appointment for your dog. You are the actress who writes a paragraph in Signal, deletes it, rewrites it. You're the person who does this or that. Fake it till you make it. Long term, it has to be enjoyable. You will never do anything you actually dislike and find boring. You just won't. Best way to create good routines is to invest time into finding the iteration of the thing that feels good. Which can be explained by the move from unipolarity to multipolarity. Well, uh, there are different explanations, uh, but... but uh, Let me fast forward here through Robert Wright. Conquer Taiwan, uh, that Taiwan's chip-making capability would be destroyed uh, before they got there. Uh, I mean, they by, by the U.S.? By the U.S.? Of course. Yeah. Uh, Moon Man says Joe Biden is allowed to be tougher on China than Trump. No, Joe Biden is just more organized than Trump. Trump has never been very good at running things, Right. If, if he just invested his money in certificates of deposit that he got from his father, like he'd be far more you know, rich than he, he is now. He just has never demonstrated much capability with running things. Joe Biden has put into practice you know, Trump's wild swings of mood and, and tweets. Right? Joe Biden has a team that has put things into practice. It has nothing to do with uh, uh, Donald Trump was afraid of being called racist. Uh, Joe Biden and his administration for all their, their flaws and faults, they are simply more effective and more organized, generally speaking, than the Trump administration. I mean, maybe. It's a pretty radical thing to start bombing. Let me forward past Robert Wright. The United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. Uh-huh. You are free to roam around the planet with your military forces because you don't face any threats in your backyard. I mean, you know as an American, and I know as an American, we face no threats, military threats in the Western Hemisphere. None. Mm-hmm. This explains, in large part, why we have military bases all over the planet, why we have military forces all over the planet, why we're interfering in the politics of countries all over the planet. And from a Chinese point of view and from a Russian point of view, this is not a good situation. The Chinese are not happy about the fact that the United States is sitting on their doorstep. The Russians are not happy about the fact that we're building this really powerful alliance right on their doorstep and moving a military base into Poland. We're here to for we've had a military right. base in Germany. Right. But the United States can do this because it's free to roam. Mm-hmm. We do not want China to be free to roam. We do not want China to have zero or hardly any security problem. And in real life, all right, guys who aren't married like me, all right, we're also free to roam. So men who aren't married not to be as reliable as married men, right? We're free to roam and much more likely to get into trouble and to dissipate our resources and our time and our energy than uh, married men with kids. Problems in Asia and be free to roam around the planet, especially into the Western Hemisphere. So what do you think it's going to do in the Western Hemisphere? So your concern is actually not what it's going to do. In- okay, let me find more here from Ms. Scheimer. Oops, there's my point. But we didn't leave. 
We didn't. I understand that. War ended. I understand that. Go to Europe instead of instead of maintaining the status quo. We moved eastward toward Russia. And but you don't think that was a particularly good idea. So why would China think it's a good idea to do something comparable? I might not have thought it was a good idea, but we did it, and that's all that matters. And well, if you're the Russians and you're the Chinese or you're the Americans, you worry about this. Well, but I, I thought you. I think the basic model was that states are rational actors. So it seems to me it's not quite enough for you to say powers have done this in the past because that might be irrational. Uh, why? So if you're going to stick with, with the rational actor model, why is it rational for China to, I don't know, uh, have the aspiration of taking over San Diego or something? I, again, I, can't, I really can't imagine what you think they want or, or what concessions would they want to extract by having a military alliance with Mexico? I mean, the one thing I can imagine is they, they'd want us to shut the hell up about how we think they should run their country. A lot of countries would like that. Uh, but but um, I'm not sure they would ally with Mexico <laughs> for, for that purpose. What do you think they would try to extract from us? What do you think they would ultimately want? Well, I mean, it, it's possible that they could put missiles in uh, but Mexico. But why? Why? Why did the Soviets put missiles in Cuba? Uh, because there was, because as you said yourself, they had an ideology of, of spreading their ideology throughout the world, A, and actually, uh, more consequentially probably, they understood we had threats at their borders. We had missiles in Turkey. And in fact, the agreement was we took the missiles out of Turkey and they took the missiles out of Cuba under the table. That was actually the deal. But um, so there were reasons uh, for that in that context. But you said yourself, China does not have aspirations to engage in a global ideological struggle. It's not, a, it doesn't have to be a global ideological struggle. It can be a balance of power struggle. I mean, I don't yeah, think I, I mean, Soviet U.S. competition was driven by ideology in any meaningful way. It was driven by balance of power politics. Stalin was a realist par excellence, as were his successors. And the reason they put missiles in Cuba had little to do with ideology and everything to do with the balance of power. Right. And the, the but, fact. Yeah. Look, let's just go to Ukraine for a second. What the Russians worry greatly about and still worry greatly about is the Americans putting missiles in Ukraine. And you say that's not going to happen. Well, the Russians will tell you we have missiles in Romania and we have missiles in Poland. And those missiles, although they're said to be for purposes of defending against Iran, can be used offensively against Russia. Take the question of Sevastopol, which is a very important Russian naval base. They leased, they leased until, until sure. 2014, Sevastopol, which is in the Crimea, from the Ukrainians, right? Their great fear was that if Ukraine became part of NATO, Sevastopol would become a naval base. And that would threaten them and their control of the Black Sea. Would become a NATO, a NATO naval base. Yes, yes, right, yeah, right. Sevastopol would become a NATO yeah. naval base. In fact, and Putin says that. Okay, looking at uh, Michael Tracy, he tweets a reaction to Joe Biden stating today, I have absolute authority as commander-in-chief. Michael Tracy says, just as the founders intended. Yeah, well, actually, actually, the president of the United States does have absolute authority as commander-in-chief with regard to foreign affairs. Right? He can bomb Russia, he can bomb China, he can deploy troops, he can kill non-American citizens, right? He can go kill anyone he wants to in Spain or France or Germany or Nigeria. So, yeah, when it comes to foreign affairs, the President of the United States pretty much has absolute authority when it comes to waging war, launching a war. The President of the United States has all the authority of, say, King George III of England back in the late 18th century. And in 2008, by the way, I think it's 2008, long before, uh, you know, the, the 2014 revolution, he says, uh, imagine, uh, uh, Sevastopol as, as a, a NATO naval base. So, so I, I accept all that, but, but I mean, back, here, here's a way to frame the question more abstractly. Okay, let's uh, posit that states are rational actors. Presumably that means they are capable of rationally playing non-zero-sum games, right? Like where there's a potential win-win outcome and a potential lose-lose outcome. An example would be the fact that we did uh, reach, uh, you know, arms control treaties with Russia. We realized, look, we're both, we're, this is lose-lose. We're both spending a ton of money on arms. We've already established deterrence. Uh, so that, that's an example of respecting uh, non-zero-sum logic, as, as are various agreements designed to prevent accidental nuclear war. So, so I assume you accept, right, that uh, rational actors will wreck. 
Okay, let me engage with the chat. Don Willis says, no, he can't. Error, error. Okay, so what can he do? Can the President of the United States send nuclear weapons to bomb another country? Yes. Can the President of the United States send special forces to go kill some foreigners? Yes. Uh, can the President of the United States, you know, deploy troops if necessary to a foreign country? Yes. All right. So when it comes to taking action in a war, all right, uh, the President of the United States has all the power of King George III. Which of those things are you claiming that he cannot do? Recognize when relations are becoming more non-zero-sum and act accordingly? Of course. And I think the best example to support your point is the uh, nuclear non-proliferation regime that the United States and the Soviet Union created during the Cold War, uh, starting uh, you know, in, in the late 1960s with the NPT and then in the mid-1970s with the Nuclear Suppliers Group. I think the two great powers during the Cold War work together. They cooperate. Uh, to effectively shut down proliferation in a big way. And uh, so there's no question that you can have a fundamentally competitive relationship uh, that has different dimensions where both sides have an incentive to cooperate, and they do cooperate. So you have cooperation and, and cooperation and competition side by side. But the key point you want to keep in mind is that the relationship is fundamentally competitive, as it was with the U.S. and the Soviets during the Cold War. Okay, but uh, if I could convince you that relations among nations are actually more non-zero-sum now, than they were 50 or 100 years ago, and that, that they're getting more that way. And I can elaborate on why. China taking place involving high-end technologies, sophisticated technologies. So the emphasis there is not on cooperation. The emphasis is on competition. There is much more. At the same time, the cost of a breach would be, a true breach would be huge, right? Uh, 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 an economic breach, like the end of, you know, what's happening with us in Russia now? Because there's a war, there's no trade. And, and, and that would be devastating to China's economy, I think. Well, you use the example of the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The example I would use is the European great powers before World War I. By all accounts, there was a huge amount of economic interdependence in Europe in 1914. Uh, and nevertheless, you had the security competition between the Triple Alliance on one side and the Triple Entente on the other side. And the end result is that in August of 1914, a war broke out, World War I, despite all that economic interdependence. So if you're relying on econ economic interdependence right, to produce peace, you want to be very, very careful. And again, I want to emphasize that Economic interdependence today is not all about cooperation. There mm -hmm. is a heavy uh, amount of competition sure. involved with high-end technologies. And with regard to nuclear weapons, I would certainly not argue that nuclear weapons don't matter and make the world today somewhat different than the world looked like before 1945. I mean, you and I would agree on that for sure. But I would note to you that what you get at the nuclear level, and you can see it happening now, is not so much cooperation, but competition. Yeah, the United States and the Soviet Union cooperated to put together a non-proliferation regime, and that was all for the good. But they waged an intense security competition at the nuclear level during the Cold War. And it's already happening between the United States and China, and it has been happening between the United States and Russia. So nuclear weapons, although they certainly matter, and they have an effect on the nature of international policy. Okay, if you think I was just uh, making it up, Don Willis, about uh, the foreign policy powers of the President of the United States, I refer you to an excellent paper by two professors of Yale Law School who hold my view. 2010 paper published in the Minnesota Law Review by two Yale University law professors, Sanford Levinson and Jack Falken, Constitutional Dictatorship, Its Dangers and Its Designs. So Americans think that if they know one thing about the system of government, it is that they live in a democracy and less fortunate people live in dictatorships. Well, every functioning democracy contains considerable elements of dictatorship and every dictatorship contains you know, considerable elements of you know, other forms of government. And so you can check the link in the video description. You can read this paper where, where constitutional scholars 
much wiser, more learned than myself, made the very same point that I made, that the President of the United States has all the foreign policy powers of King George III in Great Britain in the late 18th century. So the President of the United States can go to war if he wishes. The United States, for example, is committed to fighting Taiwan, and it doesn't really matter what people think about it, right? That people don't have a choice. Foreign policy is decided by elites overwhelmingly. It's not decided by voters. Politics, to some extent, uh, they don't take that fundamentally competitive element uh, off the table. No, no. The, life is always a mixture of zero-sum and non-zero-sum. I do think you can argue convincingly that the ratio of non-zero-sum to zero-sum in international relations has grown as a result of technological evolution. People often bring up the World War One example you brought up in Norman Angel's book, and that is, I think, mischaracterized as predicting there wouldn't be war. I think what he said was it wouldn't be rational to have war given that degree of economic entanglement. In any event, uh, I assume you think that it would have been nice to avoid World War One, right? I, I mean, uh, th that in fact, what and Don Willis says, quote, I refer you, bursting grin. No, I'm using you as an example, Don Willis. I'm not talking to you exactly, because I know that you're not going to go read a constitutional law article. But I'm using you as an example. There are people who will go do that kind of work. I recognize that you just want to smoke, and that's cool, bro. I'm just using you as a template. World War One demonstrated was that relations were highly non-zero-sum. World War One was lose-lose certainly on a human scale in terms of the actual lives lost and people. States and China is inevitable. I've long said that what was inevitable was an intense security competition and there was a serious possibility of war. But I want to go back to your World War I case. You're, you're equating rationality with outcomes and you're saying you got World War I, it was a disaster and therefore the decision to start World Yeah, this is a great point by John Mearsheimer. People make this point all the time. They say, oh, it's totally irrational of Germany to start two world wars. Well, the outcome, it turned out poorly for Germany in both cases, but it wasn't irrational. Germany had a solid chance in both wars to control and dominate Europe quickly and win both wars. World War I was irrational or non-rational. I think that's a mistake. And as Sebastian Rosado and I make clear in the book, uh, you cannot equate outcomes with rationality. So that brings us to the question of why did the Germans start the war? And I do believe the Germans started the war, right? And mm. it was basically a preventive war. And what the Germans saw was that the Russians were recovering from their defeat in 1904-1905 at the hands of the Japanese. They were growing economically and militarily. The French were taking certain steps to improve their military capability, as were the British. And they were forming an alliance, the Triple Entente, Britain, France, and Russia. And Germany's relative power position in the system was decreasing. And the Germans were really scared. They felt they were surrounded. And the future meant uh, a shifting balance of power against them. And therefore, they went to war. It's not altogether unlike what Putin did. It's a defensive war. It was a preventive war. It was to prevent the balance of power from shifting against them. Now, you could say that that is non-rational, but I don't think it's non-rational. I think it made sense from the German point of view, and I think it made sense from Putin's point of view. How it all works out, whether Putin fails or whether he succeeds, tells you nothing about whether it was rational, in my opinion. Yeah, not in and of itself. Uh, so, yeah, great point there by John Mearsheimer. Great way to end the show. Take care. Bye bye.